The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Siso Mpofu Walsh, a postdoctoral fellow here at Wiser, and welcome once again to the Wiser Podcast. This podcast is drawn from an online event at WISER entitled On Violence, an intergenerational conversation about women's resistance. Held on August the 11th, 2021, as part of Women's Month in South Africa, the event was anchored by Sisong M. Simang in conversation with Zubeda Jaffer and Simamkele Zagavu. Nsimang is a prominent writer, activist, political analyst, and writing fellow at Wiser. Jaffer is a veteran journalist, writer, and anti-apartheid activist, whose third book, Beauty of the Heart, The Life and Times of Charlotte Manya Matleke, forms part of the discussion. Tlagavu is a young scholar and gender activist who played a prominent role in the Feast Must Fall movement. The podcast includes the soundtrack of a video whose context is not explained in the discussion. For context, the video looks back to the hashtag RU reference list, which took place at Rhodes University and Witz University and a host of other universities in 2016. Part of the Fees Must Fall movement, the hashtag RU reference list was a protest speaking to the pervasiveness of gender-based violence on university campuses across South Africa. So I, I want to I want to begin the conversation with with a reflection backwards. And so Zubeda, I will I will begin with you. Your most recent book, of course, is about Charlotte Matleke, uh, who we are all celebrating this year. And so I guess the question is, why do you think? She is important when we speak both about violence against women, but also more broadly about resistance. What does she embody? What does she represent for all of us? No, she, um, uh, Sisonka, she was written out of history, even in the 70s and 80s. I think she was only really known, um, you know, amongst people in exile but not really in the country because it was never ever mentioned. Uh, her name was never ever mentioned um, in all those years that I um, uh, was sort of um, aware of. And um, it's important, she's important uh, and it's fantastic that it's come full circle now because she demonstrates and shows us that there's been a consistent effort over a very long period of time to deal with the issues and versions of the issues that we struggle with today, that we still struggle with today. And um, it's important also, and I'm really hoping that, that many people will familiarize themselves with the story because it shows us how we have a baton to pick up. We have a baton to pick up from people, she and her circle, we are focusing on her, but it's actually she and her youthful circle, um, I would like to call the Kimberley circle, they consistently, you know, had a vision 
for higher education and they set out, they set out to carve the path. They set the education train on, on its path. And if it wasn't stopped in, um, in, uh, in, by apartheid in 1930, after she had died, but that didn't mean derailed so badly, then who knows where we would have been. But then we had to waste so much of our time to and waste so much energy. Even she, you know, what they did was to, you know, chip away at the edifice of authoritarianism that was imposed on us. And so in the case of, 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 of violence against women, I was amazed to come across a text of a speech that she gave at um, the memorial of Nsikana in 1922. Uh, this was in Johannesburg, where she not only spoke uh, directly to women about what she expected from them, but she spoke to men as well about what she was expecting from them. And I want to read just briefly what she said. Because for me, um, it, 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 it led me to give the book the title, uh, give to the book's title, and it's made a very, very deep impression on me. She's, she said, it is the beauty of the heart and good behavior that will last until you go to the, the grave. She, beauty is adorable when accompanied by other good things. She Before that, she had listed how she expected the young women to conduct themselves. I'm not going to go into all that. Um, it is in the book. But then she turns. She turns to the men and she says, we want men to protect the women of their nation, not men who hurt and endanger women when they become aware of their rights. How extraordinary that she could have analyzed the core of our difficulty, um, not men who hurt and endanger women when they become aware of their rights. And then she says to the men, we want men who are the salvation of the young girls of their nation, who can depend on their presence. We need men who will humble themselves so that the nation may lift them up to be the stars of Africa for future generations. That is what Africa wants. That is what the women of Africa are weeping and praying for. For me, um, it, is, it is very particularly poignant because that she could, you know, it's, you could say it's 100 years ago, it's 1922, it's 99 years ago, that she could analyze, you know, um, and as I said, those who were around her in such a progressive way what was at the heart of it that when women assert their rights, their, their rights, then they are, you know, opening themselves to be hurt. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I want to ask Simam Gele what she, you know, what, when you think about this quote in particular that Zubeda has just shared and this notion of, um, of, a warning to men not to attack women when they know their, their rights. I, I, I think that's a really interesting way of phrasing it. So it's not just um, men do not be violent against women. It's that there's a particular kind of woman who she is warning men not to be 
um, attacking. And that is the sense that once women know too much, they are subject to attack. Mm -hmm. I find that sort of at the core of the, of, of the warning that she's giving. And so I'm wondering what you think about her, but more, and that quote, but more importantly, in a sense, I guess I'm asking why you think it matters to know the history of women who have, who have resisted oppression. So mom Charlotte, but also more broadly, this question about history and women's erasure, which is where Zubeda sort of began the conversation about her that so many people did not know about her. Mm. Thank you both. Um, just to answer your question about what I think about um, Mama Charlotte Makaike is that I obviously growing up um, in this country knew about um, Charlotte, but as a symbolic figure. So um, I've been living in Joburg uh, for 11 years now because I started um, university at WITS around 2010. And so obviously I was, I knew about Charlotte Michael Hospital. Um, I lived in downtown Joburg. I saw the street name. So I knew her as a symbolic figure because that's what we tend to do to women political icons. We tend to um, make them symbolic figures. So we post their names on streets or in hospitals or in, in university buildings. But in 2015, I came across this PhD thesis by Tozama April on Charlotte Matlake that she completed at UWC, the University of Western Cape. And that thesis was mind blowing, um, not only intellectually, but politically because of the moment that we were experiencing in South Africa, because I was a part of the fallist movement um, in 2015 and 2016 that erupted in our university campuses. Um, the fallist movement, um, which called for the decommodification of institutions of higher learning and education in general through fees must fall, that called for um, the decolonizing of our university spaces and curriculum um, in an intersectional way. And so coming across this thesis about the intellectual and political contributions of Matlaike and her generation was really pivotal in my journey. And as well as the journey of, you know, the feminists that I was fighting and organizing alongside. Um, and I just want to turn to um, um, Tazama April's PhD thesis um, and why it was important for me. So here she says in page um, 11 of the thesis, Matlaike did not embrace essentialist notions of race, class, nationality, and gender, but tried to foster ethical relations in understanding complex social relations. She understood that women by virtue of their positions in society were not considered full citizens. And so by reading that passage, you can start seeing that Matlaike and her generation were thinking in what Kimberly Crenshaw coined as intersectionality. And so it was important for me as a Black feminist, as a Pan-African feminist, um, to, to recognize, um, especially in the wake of criticism from not only white feminist spaces, but also 
black political or black pan-Africanist spaces that what is African feminism? What is black feminism? To And upon critiques that are, oh, we've exported, uh, I mean, imported African-American notions of feminism to just say that, look, there were women like Charlotte thinking in these ways, trying to show us that oppression is multidimensional and that there are intersecting points of oppression. And so for me, Charlotte is important as a thinker, as an organizer, uh, more so than a symbolic figure. Thanks, Mamgela. I, I think there's a lot in there and, I, and I, it, it begs the question about what, what do you do with the state? Because ultimately direct action um, and repoliticizing the debate is absolutely crucial, but it's, it seems to me as a, uh, as a, as a way to get the state to do what the state must do. And so I, and, I, and so, so the question that I want to ask Zubeda then is because, because in 1994, all of us believed very strongly that the responsibility was uh, lay with the state and that the machinery, the, 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 the commission that we set up and ministry for justice and the police, that all of these would work in concert to make women's lives safe. So what happened is, is, is one form of asking the question. Uh, and I think importantly, um, yeah, so let me ask it, let me ask it, let me stop there. Let me ask, was that a wrong strategy? Was that a wrong strategy to invest so much time, energy, and effort into making the state work for women? It may have been, uh, you know, there was, on the one end, you know, I say if one had to do this all over again, let's say we suddenly go back to 1994. One of the things I said to somebody the other day, I would have, what would have been a wise thing would have been to send some people into the state structures but to support others to work very strongly within communities. And what we did, what was done then was that all the best minds were, were mobilized and sent into the state structures. And that I think, and it left the communities bereft um, of, 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 of leadership. Often people moved out, which I can, I can understand that also, but but they, but we we created a gap um, in the country on the ground, and if there was, if we, if we had the wisdom of hindsight, we would say that send some people, you know, key people into state structures, but leave you know a substantial number of people on the ground to keep, um, you know those street committees and those um, basic organizations going that can continue the, the, the deep conversations within communities. Whereas now we have a situation where people are so disconnected, they, they are not really, I mean, one can't say, you know, voting every five years or four years, whatever is, is democracy, it has to be, there has to be a base, there has to be a deep uh, interaction within each community. And at the moment, 
we we don't have that. We don't have that, and it's um, it's 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 a real it's a real pity because we've put a lot of resources and energy into building institutions, which is not necessarily wrong, but we somehow didn't spread. You know, we didn't separate. We didn't see. Um, we didn't separate that from the work that has to be done in every community. And so the biggest, one of the biggest challenges we have now is that at the local level, we don't have, you know, the kinds of structures that we had perhaps in the 80s where, where people felt held by, the, by those around them. Um, and so it's a free for all. And so there's a real there's a real difficulty with that, and I'm really really interested in you know the kind of work that must be done community by community. Um, is there still a place for the ANC Women's League, or is this something and for those kinds of formations, or is this something that we need to leave in the past? Do we say that the state machinery will take us nowhere and that the only way forward is direct action? And if that is what we are saying, direct action to what end? Yeah, and Simam Gela, you can take that question. Mm, so many important reflections. Um, okay, so I want to start with a question around direct action to what end? Um, I just want to share quotes here. I just... Um, recently wrote about this. So um, from the president um, and Ramaphosa and Malekambete, um, these are quotes from the, um, the, the presidential summit on gender-based violence, which happened in 2018. So I'm just going to um, read some of those quotes. Firstly, starting with the Ramaphosa. So he said, in August, I made a commitment that we shall convene the summit to develop a national plan of action against gender-based violence. I made this promise that we will hold the summit and I'm glad that, you, that we've lived up to this moment. This promise was made following the activism by very brave young women in our country, the hashtag, the total shutdown movement. And I'm rather glad that they stood up and decided that enough is enough and that they would embark on action, on the action that they have embarked upon. In quotes, that was Ramaphosa. The second quote I want to share is by, by Balek Ambeta, same day. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the campaign all over the country, where we saw the women marching and saying enough is enough. And so I highlight these quotes by Balek Ambete, who was the then, um, I think, uh, speaker, yeah. chair, national chair, of the head yeah. speaker of the brand. Of the brand. <laughs> yeah, and then, and the Ramaphosa. And in, in this particular platform, and in the same year, it was the first time that a state president, to my knowledge, acknowledged G G GBV as a pandemic. We know, first of all, in the Mbeki years, there's, there's a huge case um, that went on when a feminist activist highlighted um, in the Mbeki years that GBV and rape in particular were huge challenges. And Mbeki's response was, 
rather very defensive um, to say that, no, this white woman is making assumptions and saying that black men are rapists. So basically, he didn't want to attach any political significance to this growing crisis. And then obviously the Zuma years, we had Zuma. And I believe Fez, Fez, I believe Um, And yeah, I don't want to talk about him further. And then, so now with Ramaphosa, we have a state president acknowledging the crisis of GBV. But it's important to know how did that come about? That came about as he acknowledged and Balekambete acknowledged through direct action, through the total shutdown movement, through women saying, Ramaphosa, we're not leaving the union buildings until you come and address us. They stayed, these women stayed there till the evening to get the summit, to get the current plan that we have today that he spoke about um, in his Women's uh, Day national address. So that is um, your answer to the direct action question. We engage in direct action, not for the sake of it, but for political means, right? For to make certain claims and certain demands uh, to the states. Because uh, I wanted um, to, I couldn't find the exact quote now by a woman that I, you know, admire so much, Kwezulom Sombadazai, who gave, who borrowed the name uh, to Feze Gile the name Kwezi, who's a gender justice activist, was, who was instrumental in this plan and in the total shutdown movement. And after the, 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 the Remember Kwezi protest, um, she, along with um, Bumi from the One and Nine campaign, went, into, went and had an interview with ENCA and said that we will engage the state because we have no option. The state is ours and we need to make the state, we need to make the state work for us. We acknowledge as feminist academics and activists have acknowledged that the state is patriarchal in nature. However, it is the vehicle that we have at the moment, and therefore we have to make it work for us. We lay claim to the state because women fought for this country, women fought for the state, so it is ours too. And so the resources of the state need to be utilized for us too. Um, and so I hope I've answered the questions. It does. Zubeda, did you want to make a point there about laying claim to the state that it is that 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 it is in fact ours and it has no choice but to work work for us? I think that's a I think that's a non-negotiable. Yes, I think definitely I think it would be a pity if we are, you know, if we don't take that on board because um we there's been a lot of work to to create a state that is um that is working for us. But uh, so if we just ignore, if we just suggest that, um, that we're going to go it alone, I think at this point that would be problematic. But the question still remains, Sisonke, um, if we are going to, how do we do this when there's, for example, the ANC Women's League is not an organization that I think many of us can relate to cannot relate to this and we don't see it as a principled organization. And so what do we um, what do we do under the circumstances? But I would definitely say that we don't we shouldn't we shouldn't um, isolate the state and not look for allies within the state. 
it is, it does feel like we are, and many times it does feel like we are alone. Many yeah. times I mean, the state abrogated its responsibility during the recent unrest. The state mm. did not do what the state has to do. And that was yeah. to, to secure, to provide the security um, and protect people against the violence uh, in KZN and in Gauteng. So when we see that, then we start mm -hmm. thinking, it's reasonable to think, oh my God, are we alone? Are we, yeah. are we having to organize our communities and hope for the best? Mm -hmm. So the state must be forced uh, to, to take its responsibility. We're paying people from our pockets and the state must, be, must do the basics that we expected to, them to do. And definitely security and uh, protection in, and in, a, in a violent situation is absolutely crucial. Thanks, Isabel. Yes, Sima, you wanted to? Sima, I yeah. wanted to speak to the point that you made, um, Sisanke, about the depoliticized civil society. I think that was uh, an important point, is because it is, in fact, that civil society has been depoliticized, but also someone made the same point in the chat that civil society organizations were bled dry after 1994. And how we got to this democracy is through actions of civil society, because we are knowledgeable that, you know, post um, Sharpeville, um, there was a political vacuum in the country and political parties were banned uh, and political leaders were sent into exile um, or imprisoned. And so we know that to achieve this democracy today, it was through the actions of civil society instead of, you know, the traditional political party structures, particularly in the country, because political parties and political leaders were banned. But post-1994, a lot of Similarly to, you know, women in, in the feminist movement went into the state, civil society leaders also went into the state. And so it is a challenge. Um, how do we repoliticize civil society in ways that also are not a historical, in ways that are grounded and rooted. So the principles of democracy from below, for me, are what fascinate me. Um, and so how do then we also repoliticize uh, civil society?